Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In June 2018, I had taken a trip to Grand Teton National Park, hoping to visit the popular area near Jenny Lake. However, upon arrival, I discovered that the area had been closed to the public due to concerns over expanding cracks and fissures in a large rock formation. Disappointed but undeterred, I decided to explore other parts of the park. While Yellowstone had been in a perpetual state of unrest with its steamboat geyser erupting constantly, I had never expected to witness something so unusual and potentially significant during my visit. One afternoon, as I hiked through the park, I came across a live webcam that had been set up to monitor the area. Curious, I stopped to take a look at the footage. To my amazement, I spotted a strange, colorful bird perched on a branch just within the camera's view. The bird resembled the mythological firebird, or phoenix, a sacred creature found in many cultures. Its majestic plumage glowed brightly, emitting red, orange, and yellow light, like a bonfire that was just past the turbulent flame. I couldn't believe my eyes. 
Was this a mere coincidence, or was there something more to this mysterious bird's appearance? I decided to investigate further, taking photos of the bird with my camera and making notes of its behavior. As I observed, the bird seemed to have a calming presence, as if it was somehow connected to the recent geological events at the park. Word soon spread about the appearance of this mysterious firebird, and people flocked to the live webcam to catch a glimpse of the creature. Some believe that the bird's presence signaled an imminent eruption or a significant geological event, while others saw it as a symbol of hope and renewal amidst the chaos. As the days passed, the firebird continued to make appearances on the live webcam, drawing the attention of experts and enthusiasts alike. Theories abounded, but no one could definitively explain the bird's origin or purpose. Eventually, the firebird disappeared from the webcam as suddenly as it had appeared. The park returned to its usual state of unrest, but the memory of the mysterious bird lingered in the minds of those who had witnessed its beauty. Looking back on that experience, I'm still awestruck by the incredible sight of the firebird in Grand Teton National Park. While its true nature may never be known, its presence in a time of uncertainty served as a reminder of the enduring power of hope and the beauty that can be found even in the midst of chaos. My husband is a social worker and worked in the Austin State Hospital for a while. He was doing emergency mental health work with the police, and their unit was stationed at the hospital. Ash is pretty well known for being haunted. He was working late one night in an office with huge floor-to-ceiling windows. The office did not have any blinds or window treatments, so when the lights are on at night, the area outside the windows are pitch black. One of the windows was actually a door that was always locked. He doesn't even think it opens anymore because the building is so old. The area outside the windows is a courtyard that is inaccessible because it's sandwiched by other buildings. To get to it, you'd need a key to get through one of the generally never opened doors from one of the other buildings. Most of these buildings are empty or abandoned. Ash was defunded years ago, so a lot of the buildings are in total disrepair. This particular night, he was alone and got up to go to the bathroom. He was always creeped out by the windows. When he got up to go to the bathroom, he looked out the window and saw a man standing in the abandoned courtyard staring back at him. He freaked out and called security. They searched the area and never found anyone. He told his co-workers and they said, don't ever tell me anything like that again. He used to joke that it was a ghost who would attack counselors but not social workers to freak out his LPC corkers. used to do armed security in Denver. If you are familiar with the Lakewood area, there is a place called Clare Gardens. Next to that is a retirement community called Francis Heights, and connected to the Heights is a nursing home called Dayspring. Place is rumored to be haunted. I was told that it was all built over an old orphanage that was ran by two nuns and a priest, whom neglected the orphans there and apparently some of the kids that died are buried there. Some of the ladies on the night cleaning staff were about to quit because they would clean the glass panes on the windows and doors, then returned later to find little handprints on them. 
The residents would complain that they could hear kids running up and down the halls laughing and playing. There is an indoor gym next door, and my partner and I got bored one night and decided to go investigate to see if anything scary happened. I remember that sometimes in photos, paranormal things can be captured on film that we can't see with the naked eye. Took a random picture of the inside of the gym while my partner was off exploring, and when I looked at the picture, I saw what appeared to be the shadow. Silhouette of a person standing there looking down at its feet. Decided not to explore so much after that. I am writing a book about the crazy experiences that happened on the job. People think nothing happens on duty as a rent-a-cop. We have our days too, LOL. I'm a hospital chaplain. I was on call one night. I got a call from a nurse about 3 a.m. saying that she got stuck with a psych patient as they were considered psychotic, but not enough to be placed in the behavioral health unit. The patient was admitted a few days back, but suddenly just stopped talking to the nurses, other than saying I'm dead and I can't talk to the living. Working in an area with many drug abuse patients and an unusually high amount of psych patients, an event like this wasn't too strange. However, seeing as they were having a hard time trying to communicate with the patient, the nurse was kind of fed up and just called the on-call chaplain to see if I could help. I arrive at about 3 a.m. and the nurse tells me what I just told you. The nurse escorts me in the room and the patient gives her the same one-liner spiel. Upon seeing me, she said, Oh, you're dead too. I can talk to you. The patient then indicated for the nurse to leave, and I sat and talked for a good hour of this patient's concerns, how they were going to die soon, and felt unable to talk to any of the living. However, the patient insisted that I was dead too, and that I was the only one she could talk to. Without breaking HIPPA, she gave some general end-of-life concerns one would typically see with the added benefit of how she was able to get glimpses of heaven, but because of this, could not really talk to the living. Having personally responded to other behavioral health complaints involving religious psychosis, I took this as another typical case. I was able to get the information and communicate the wishes of the nurse, and after explaining the details to the nurse, left shortly thereafter. I made it back home and I'm just getting to sleep as I get a call from the operator saying there is a code in the same room impatient I just left and I was asked to come back in. By the time I made it to the hospital, the patient had died, arguably the weirdest case I've ever handled. When I was 19, 20, I lived in Maryland and was obsessed with photographing abandoned houses in some of the run-down suburban areas around where I grew up. I got arrested, a driven home in cuffs and slapped on the wrist, a lot for trespassing. But I was dumb, and this didn't stop me. So I went to this abandoned house that supposedly a cop was killed in, and now no one lived there. It was pretty odd inside. The floor was a foot deep with just broken furniture and detritus. It was like whoever abandoned the place left everything they owned there and then. Kids came in and smashed it all and left it on the floor. 
creepy house, but I didn't feel anything oppressive or weird about it. I was there during the day, alone, but I didn't get any chills or anything. Took photos of the downstairs, and then went upstairs. The stairs were wood and looked pretty secure, not obviously rotted or anything. While I'm up there, I heard a cop car pull up outside and chirp its siren. Two cops came into the house, and I yelled down where I was. One of the cops told me to stay there and started to come upstairs. I'd gone up no problem, and this dude was a skinny little rookie-looking dude, so we were honestly probably the same weight. Except that every time he put his weight on one of the steps, it broke. Sometimes just a little, so he kept going, but twice his foot went all the way through the step. It was the weirdest thing. Eventually he backed off and I came down. None of the upper steps broke for me and I jumped down over the broken ones. They took me home and it was fine, but that's still the weirdest experience of my life. Maybe something in that house still really hated cops. When I was just a kid, I lived in a rural area in central Indiana, surrounded by open fields and dense woods. The nights were dark and quiet, punctuated only by the sounds of crickets and the occasional howl of distant coyotes. It was a simple life, but I loved it. One night, when I was about ten years old, I woke with an overwhelming urge to relieve myself. My family's house didn't have indoor plumbing, so I had to step outside to do my business. I groggily pulled on my boots and trudged out into the chilly night, the full moon casting eerie shadows across the yard. As I approached our old rusty pickup truck parked near the edge of the woods, I unzipped my pants and began to pee. It was then that I noticed something strange. There was a looming presence behind the truck, almost as if it was hiding there. My heart skipped a beat, and I squinted my eyes to try to make out what it was. The creature stood about seven feet tall, with thick, shaggy red hair covering its body. Its eyes seemed to pierce through the darkness, sending shivers down my spine. The air around it was heavy with a sort of energy that whispered into my soul, urging me to leave immediately. I didn't need any more convincing. I zipped up my pants and bolted back into the house, slamming the door behind me. My mother, woken by the noise, came rushing into the room her face etched with concern. I breathlessly recounted what I had seen, my voice shaking as I described the strange creature. Without wasting any time, my mother decided that we needed to move. She never told me why, but I think she believed in what I saw that night. We packed up our things and left our rural Indiana home behind, moving to a bustling city far away from the woods and the creature that had frightened me so. As I grew older, I would occasionally come across stories of Bigfoot and other cryptids, but none of them seemed to match the description of the creature I had seen that night. It wasn't until I stumbled upon the movie Underworld and other werewolf films that I began to wonder if what I had witnessed was a werewolf. The resemblance was uncanny, but I still wasn't sure. Then one day I discovered the story of the Beast of Bray Road. As I delved into the documentaries and witness accounts, I felt a chill run down my spine. This was it. This was what I had seen all those years ago. The descriptions matched almost perfectly from the red hair to the menacing energy. I spent years researching the Beast of Bray Road and other similar sightings, trying to understand the creature that haunted my childhood. 
I don't know if I'll ever find the answers I'm looking for, but one thing is certain. That fateful night in rural Indiana changed my life forever, and I'll never forget the chilling presence of the creature that lurked behind the truck. I always loved being up in the woods of Washington. The cold, frigid air cuts through my clothes and makes my bones cold. The kind of cold that makes your soul take a deep breath. I muster my strength upon a steep incline through these woods. I keep on telling myself one more step is all I need. When you know you're in a tight spot, you always encourage her for myself. I lie to myself. Helps keep me going. I turn around as I finally reach the campsite and welcome the achievement of life that I'm at. The sun is now going down and I pitch up my three-step pop-up tent. I begin to crawl into my half-made tent like a dog runs to its kennel after being awake all day. I take my baby wipes out and begin bird bathing myself. Even though I am freezing, I know sweat is all over my body, especially the amount of layers I wear currently. Jeans off, jacket off, sweater off, socks off, shorts off. I feel relaxed and refreshed cleaning myself off. After this eight-hour trek through the woods of Mount Est Helens, I open my map and begin to chart my next destination in dreams of Mount Rainier after Helens. Crack a pause and carefully peek out my tent liner. I don't see anyone or anything. I lay down, enjoying the nature around me, and begin to drift off. Crack I sit up and open my liner and I see a face. A heart pounding in this pale white man runs across my tent into the tree line. I begin looking through my bag to find bear mace in my camping axe. I clutch it with white knuckles as hard as I can and I step out my tent. I turn around and see a ring of men in black robes around my campsite staring at me. I run into my tent and phone for the park rangers. Rangers pick up and I scream help. I'm being stalked. There's dozens of people around me. Please get here as fast as possible. I stay in my tent staring at my phone with every minute passing by. I become more fearful. Breathing speeding up with every breath. Anxiety shaking my body. All I hear is who phoned for the rangers. I bolt out of my tent to see two rangers on four wheelers armed with hunting rifles. I look, and no one is around us, just me and the rangers. I hop on their four-wheeler, and one hour later, I get returned to their office. I get handed a bulky camera, and I cycle through the photos. Pictures of me throughout my hike were taken, distant shots, and pics of me even urinating outside. Till this day, I don't go to the woods near Mount St. Helens. I have had my fair share of paranormal experiences. One of the most bizarre encounters occurred in the streets of Iliopolis, Greece, where I saw a strange woman with large, protruding eyes, a high forehead, and an in incredibly thin waist. She was dressed in old-fashioned gray clothes, a skirt and a jacket, and beneath them she wore tight, transparent trousers. She was accompanied by a peculiar dog which appeared to be a shadow hovering just above the ground. The creature was tethered to her with a transparent thick cord. As I approached her, trying to ask who she was and when she had come from, she shot me a fierce glare and vanished into the St. George site of antiquities.
The very next day, word spread that an aluminum hut had descended from the sky and landed in the nearby fields of St. Nicholas. It had windows through which a shepherd reportedly saw incredibly ugly dwarfs, of which had the head of an animal. After a few minutes, a door opened, and a dwarf emerged holding something resembling a golden plate. The strange woman I'd encountered the day before appeared as well. The dwarf bowed to her, and she filled the plate with dirt before they both entered the hut. The peculiar structure then took off, disappearing into the sky with a loud bang. It was a bright summer day when my extended family and I decided to go hiking on a trail at the breaks in Virginia. We had planned this trip for weeks, excited about spending some quality time together and reconnecting with nature. The weather was perfect and spirits were high as we embarked on our adventure. As we hiked deeper into the woods, we chatted and laughed, enjoying each other's company. The trail was beautiful, with lush greenery surrounding us and the sound of bird song filling the air. It felt like we were miles away from the hustle and bustle of everyday life. After hiking for a couple of hours, we came across a large rock that appeared to be the site of some sort of ritual. The scene was eerie, with strange symbols and what looked like remnants of candles scattered around. I'm not a religious person, but even I couldn't shake the feeling that there was something deeply unsettling about the place. It reminded me of the Blair Witch Project, and I couldn't help but feel a shiver run down my spine. Feeling unnerved, we decided to abandon our hike and head back to the road as quickly as possible. We hurried along the trail, eager to put the unsettling scene behind us. It was then that my mom's cousin's husband revealed that he had a GPS satellite tracker on him, which we could have used an hour before to avoid getting lost. As we followed the GPs, we realized that we had somehow managed to hike all the way to the Virginia-Kentucky state border. The realization was both amusing and alarming, as we could have been lost in the woods for much longer if not for the GPS. When we finally made it back to the road, we came across a park ranger who was patrolling the area. We shared our experience with him, describing the strange ritual site we had found. The ranger listened carefully, his expression growing increasingly concerned. I've heard rumors about this sort of thing happening in the area, he told us, but I've never come across it myself. It's important that you reported it so we can keep an eye out for any suspicious activity. We thanked the ranger for his help and made our way back to our cars, relieved to have made it out of the woods unscathed. As we drove away, I couldn't help but feel grateful for the presence of the park ranger and the GPS satellite tracker that had guided us to safety. That day, our family hike took an unexpected turn, but it brought us closer together as we faced the unknown. The experience taught us the importance of being prepared for anything and the value of looking out for one another. And while the memory of the eerie ritual site still sends shivers down my spine, I'll always remember the adventure we shared and the bond it forged between us. It was a warm summer day, and I had decided to spend it hiking at Gales Creek Park, west of Banks, Oregon. The park was known for its beautiful scenery and challenging two-and-half-mile trail. 
As I set off on my adventure, I couldn't help but feel excited about exploring the lush green surroundings. About an hour into my hike, I came across a woman and her daughter who seemed to be intently examining something on the ground. Intrigued, I approached them and introduced myself. The woman, Hannah Horvath, explained that they had found some strange hair near the trail. She showed me the whitish hair, which could have belonged to a sheep or a dog, but there was something odd about it. Hannah told me that she and her daughter had been out hiking the trail several times before and had encountered some unusual phenomena. They had heard strange noises, found possible Bigfoot tracks, and even saw a large dropping, a 14-inch paddy, nearby. They had also noticed a tree about eight inches thick that was broken off five feet above the ground. As we continued discussing their findings, park ranger Ralph approached us, curious about our conversation. We filled him in on the details, and he listened intently, nodding thoughtfully. He revealed that there had been other reports of strange occurrences in the park, and he was investigating them. Ralph examined the hair Hannah had found and told us that it would be sent for analysis to determine its origin. He also took a look at the photos of the possible Bigfoot tracks in the broken tree. Though he remained skeptical, he acknowledged that the evidence was intriguing. With Ranger Ralph's encouragement, Hannah, her daughter, and I continued our hike together, keeping our eyes and ears open for any further clues. As we walked, we shared stories of other strange encounters and speculated on the possibility of a Bigfoot living in the park. By the end of our hike, we hadn't found any more evidence, but we had formed a bond over our shared experience. We exchanged contact information and promised to keep each other updated on any future findings. A few weeks later, Hannah called to let me know that the hair analysis had come back inconclusive. The mystery of the strange hair and other oddities in Gales Creek Park remained unsolved, but the experience had sparked a fascination in us all. Even park ranger Ralph admitted that he couldn't entirely dismiss the possibility of something extraordinary living in the park. The experience at Gales Creek Park left me with a sense of wonder and curiosity about the world around me. Sometimes the unexplained can lead to the most unforgettable adventures and the most unlikely friendships. It was December 2017. I was living in suburban Maryland, just northeast of Washington, D.C. I woke up at 1.30 a.m. to the sound of a break. In, I grabbed a handgun from my bedside drawer and went to the bedroom door to confront the intruder, but was suddenly rendered unconscious as I touched the doorknob. I woke up naked and cold, in a pill-shaped glass container. The lid was open, so I was able to stumble out onto the floor around the container. I felt drugged and could barely walk, but I thought I'd been kidnapped by someone, so I was urgently trying to find an escape rock. The room I was in was made of composite materials, namely concrete and plastic with fluorescent lights. I limped into a hallway that was tunnel-shaped and followed a blue glow coming from down the hall. As I walked, I came out of the tunnel and entered a large cylindrical room, lined with vehicles on hooks along the walls. They were human vehicles, mostly Japanese, and German cars, motorcycles, but some vehicles were clearly from the American military. 
In the center of the room was what looked like a metal tree that was six stories tall with glowing blue leaves. But upon closer inspection, this tree was a large metal cylinder and the leaves were capsules, much like the one I'd woken up in, except these still had people inside them and were radiating a neon blue glow. As I drew my eyes further up the tree, I noticed some blue wires moving around in the dark area toward the ceiling. These clumps of wires suddenly floated down toward me and turned to reveal that they had faces in them, each with two large dark eyes and narrow slits for noses and mouths. It's hard to describe, and I hate to put it this way, but think of a stereotypical gray alien face and picture it floating in a tangled up mess of tentacles. There were three of them, one smiling, two frowning. There was an exchange of words and charades between myself and smiling one for roughly ten minutes, but I was so exhausted and they were so advanced that there was no pertinent information shared between us. I passed out, then woke up again face, down in a puddle of my own drool on a glass floor. I was too tired to move, so I tilted my head up just enough to take a look around. The room was circular, about 150 square feet in size, in a bright sterile white color. One of the tentacle creatures was in the room, but was busy facing away and operating a set of strange controls with no buttons or levers. I laid my head back down, but saw through the glass floor that we had risen out of a deep black hole that was dug into a grassy plain. A rock-shaped lid closed around the hole to cover it as we flew further up. This is when I realized I was in a spacecraft, and we had actually been in a silo of some sort that's here on Earth somewhere. I passed out and was awoken by the sensation of being dropped back, first onto my bed with a hard thud. I checked my phone, and it read 6.30 a.m. The whole trip had been exactly five hours. I'm not going into any further detail, but I found an object had been inserted and cauterized into my right leg, and I had a run in with some men in black suits within four days of the abduction. I've never believed in abductions or UFOs or men in black or any of that, but now I've got no choice. I'm annoyed that there's no official place to get legitimate information or help on this subject since the experience was traumatic and any kind of clarity would help fix that. I've always been passionate about the study of reptiles and amphibians. As a scientist based in Atlanta, Georgia, I, I jumped at the chance to visit the Yellowstone National Forest for a research project. My goal was to study the local snake populations, and I was excited to be out in the wilderness doing what I loved. One morning, I set out on a solo hike deep into the forest to observe and document my findings. The sun filtered through the trees, casting dappled shadows on the forest floor. The quiet serenity of nature surrounded me, and I was completely engrossed in my work. As I turned a corner on the trail, I noticed a park ranger named Alan standing a short distance away. He seemed to be observing something intently. Curious, I approached him and asked what had caught his attention. Alan whispered, I think there's a Bigfoot nearby. I've been following some unusual tracks and sounds for the past hour. I raised my eyebrows in skepticism, but the seriousness in his eyes told me that he truly believed what he was saying. 
Intrigued, I decided to join him in his search for the elusive creature. We followed the tracks and sound. Deeper into the forest, our senses heightened. After a while, we came across a small clearing, and that's when we saw it. A massive, hairy creature stood at the edge of the clearing, seemingly unaware of our presence. It had a distinctly humanoid appearance, but its size and features were unlike anything I had ever seen. As we watched in awe, the creature suddenly turned and looked directly at us. Its eyes were wide with fear, and it let out a low, mournful cry. It was clear that it was more frightened of us than we were of it. Ellen whispered to me, Stay calm and don't make any sudden movements. We don't want to scare it off or provoke it. Taking his advice, I remained still and tried to project a sense of calm. The creature continued to watch us warily, its chest heaving with heavy breaths. After what felt like an eternity, it slowly backed away into the forest, disappearing from sight. As we stood in the clearing, our hearts pounding from the adrenaline, Alan and I couldn't believe what we had just witnessed. We were both stunned by the encounter, and our minds raced with questions about the creature's existence and its place in the natural world. In the following days, we shared our story with other researchers and park officials. Many were skeptical, but some shared their own stories of strange encounters and unexplained phenomena within the Yellowstone National Forest. Though the encounter was brief, it left a lasting impression on me. I returned to Atlanta with a newfound sense of wonder and curiosity about the mysteries that still exist in our world. And as for park ranger, Alan, he continued his work in Yellowstone, always keeping an eye out for the elusive and mysterious Bigfoot that he knew was out there, hiding in the shadows of the forest. I am a park ranger in a remote area of the woods where few people come to visit. My days are usually filled with monitoring the wildlife and ensuring that the campers follow the rules. One day, a woman and her daughter came to fish in the river that runs through the woods. Later in the day, the woman's daughter came running towards me, telling me that she had found huge four-toed tracks near the riverbank. I was curious but skeptical, as bear tracks are commonly found in these woods. However, the other fishermen who had gathered around to listen to her were nodding their heads in agreement, saying they had never seen tracks like that before. I decided to investigate the tracks for myself, and the young girl eagerly led me back to the spot. Sure enough, there were tracks that were larger than any bear tracks I had ever seen, and had four toes instead of the usual five. As I examined the tracks more closely, I noticed that they were imprinted deep into the ground and the claw marks were clear. My mind raced as I tried to think of what animal could have made these tracks. As I was looking at the tracks, I heard rustling in the nearby bushes. I quickly grabbed my binoculars and focused them on the spot, and to my surprise, I saw a large creature moving through the brush. It was unlike anything I had ever seen before. It was huge, covered in dark fur, and had four legs, but moved in a way that was unlike any bear or other animal I had ever seen. I knew that the woman and her daughter had to be warned of the possible danger, so I quickly made my way back to the campsite. I informed them of what I had seen and urged them to leave immediately. They quickly packed their things and left with a newfound sense of urgency. After they had left, I went back to the spot where I had seen the creature. I searched the area, but there was no sign of it. 
However, the tracks were still there, and they confirmed that something large and unknown had been there. As I made my way back to the ranger station, I couldn't help but wonder what other secrets lay hidden in these woods, waiting to be discovered. The experience had left me both excited and fearful of what else might be out there. As a child, I always looked forward to going on long drives with my dad in his truck. This summer was no different. We were cruising down the road, enjoying our snacks when I saw something odd on the side of the road. I called out to my dad, but he didn't seem to notice it. A few minutes later, I saw it again. It was a creature running on the side of the road, but it was hazy and blurry. This time, my dad saw it too, but he shrugged it off. We continued driving. But after a while, we got a flat tire. My bed pulled over to change it, and we saw that the tire had multiple holes poked in it, as if something had bitten it. While we were changing the tire, another truck passed by, and I remember admiring its cool lights. However, we didn't think much of it at the time. As we continued our journey, we saw the same truck we had passed earlier crashed on the side of the road. Police and EMTs were already... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...there, and we drove on that night, grateful that we had not been in that accident. Looking back, my dad and I still talk about that strange creature we saw, which he later learned was called a crawler. We wonder if it had something to do with the strange occurrences that night. Whether it was the creature or a mysterious force that saved us, we'll never know for sure. But the memory of that night still sends shivers down my spine. I was on a routine patrol in the nearby state park when I received a call about a suspicious individual seen wandering along the highway. As a park ranger... I'm responsible for ensuring the safety of visitors and enforcing park rules and regulations, but occasionally we have to lend a hand to our neighboring communities. I hopped in my truck and drove to the area to check it out. As I was driving, I remembered a story a fellow ranger had shared with me a few weeks ago about a man pushing a shopping cart in the middle of nowhere. It seemed like an odd coincidence that I was now on the lookout for a person matching that description. I decided to keep an eye out just in case. A few miles down the road, I saw him, the man with the shopping cart. He was pushing it along the shoulder of the highway, looking weary and disheveled. I pulled over and approached him cautiously. Excuse me, sir. Are you okay? Do you need any help? I asked him. He looked up at me with tired eyes and shook his head. No, I'm fine. Just trying to make my way to Houston, he replied. I noticed that he had a large backpack strapped to his back, and the shopping cart was filled to the brim with what appeared to be all his worldly possessions. It was clear that he was homeless and had been walking for miles. 
I introduced myself as a park ranger and offered to give him a ride to the nearest town where he could get some rest and food. He hesitated for a moment, but eventually accepted my offer. As we drove, he told me about his journey and how he ended up in Colorado. It turned out that he had been walking for days, trying to make his way to Houston to see his family. He had taken a shortcut through Keensburg, and that's where the driver had mistaken him for a deer. He was grateful for the ride and for someone who cared enough to check on him. As a park ranger, I'm used to dealing with all kinds of situations, but this one touched me in a different way. It was a reminder that even in the middle of nowhere, there are people who need our help and compassion. I dropped him off at a nearby shelter and wished him luck on the rest of his journey. As a veteran who has driven extensively in Iraq and Kuwait, I have seen my fair share of accidents and tragedies on the road. One incident that has stayed with me was the sight of a decapitated man lying on the side of the road. He had been involved in a racing accident and his head was propped up on his stomach. It was a gruesome sight, but unfortunately, such incidents were not uncommon in those parts of the world. In another instance, I witnessed a woman leaving her car running on the side of a busy street in Kuwait City with her two toddlers inside. I couldn't help but feel anxious about the potential danger they were in. One wrong move and they could have easily ended up as roadkill. These are just some of the many incidents I have witnessed while driving in these regions. It's a sobering reminder of how dangerous the roads can be and how quickly things can turn tragic. It's something that has stayed with me, and I am grateful for every safe journey I have had since then. In a world largely untouched by modern civilization, hidden within a remote corner of the earth lies a realm of untamed beauty. Towering trees reach for the sky their leaves forming a verdant canopy that shelters a remarkable array of creatures. This is where my journey begins. A tale of dedication, unity, and the unwavering commitment of a team working to safeguard the last vestiges of a fragile ecosystem. I'm Ava, and I'm a part of a remarkable team of conservationists and hunters. We've gathered from all corners of the globe to protect the endangered species that call this remote paradise home. As the sun rises over the untouched horizon, casting its golden glow across the wilderness, we embark on our daily mission. Our partnership is unconventional, bridging the gap between those who have dedicated their lives to preserving nature and those whose skills were once employed in taking it down. Yet our shared commitment binds us in ways words cannot capture. Together we work to dismantle poaching networks that threaten the very heart of this ecosystem. The challenges we face are formidable, our adversaries driven by greed and ignorance. Poachers armed with weapons that shatter the tranquil silence of the forest relentlessly stalk these lands in search of ivory pelts and body parts that hold no value beyond their commodification. Our enemies are not just the poachers themselves, but the insatiable demand for these illegal products, a demand that stretches across oceans. Our strategy is a careful dance of innovation and tradition. 
We employed drones to monitor the movements of wildlife, track poacher activity, and document the poaching hotspots. Our knowledge of the land is deep-rooted, passed down from generations of hunters who have evolved into protectors. We strategically position camera traps, capturing images of elusive creatures that would otherwise vanish into the shadows. But it's not just about outsmarting poachers. It's about fostering a genuine connection with the animals we strive to save. Each of us carries an unspoken bond with the creatures we've pledged to protect. I remember the time I gazed into the eyes of a majestic tiger. Its amber gaze a mix of curiosity and caution. It was a moment that transcended words, forging a connection that fueled my determination. One evening, as the sun dipped below the horizon, casting an array of warm colors across the sky, our campfire became a sanctuary for stories. The older members of our team recounted their experiences, tales of danger and triumph that had shaped their lives. As the stories flowed, I realized that beneath their rugged exteriors lay hearts that beat in harmony with the rhythm of the wilderness. But it wasn't just about camaraderie, it was about resilience. We've faced setbacks that would have broken lesser spirits. We've mourned the loss of some of the most majestic beings to the cruelty of poaching, feeling the weight of responsibility for their deaths. Yet from those ashes of despair arose a determination to fight harder, to innovate more, to connect deeper. As time marches on, our efforts yield results. The poaching networks we once battled are dismantled, driven to the brink of extinction, like the very species they sought to exploit. The animals begin to thrive, their numbers slowly rising from the brink of oblivion. Our triumphs are marked by the haunting calls of birds, the distant roars of lions, and the rustling of leaves as creatures once on the verge of vanishing return to reclaim their place. Our journey continues. An unyielding dedication to a world where humanity and nature coexist in harmony. As the sun sets over the wilderness, casting long shadows across the land we've sworn to protect, I know that our story is far from over. It's a story of unity, innovation, and unwavering resolve. As we stand hand in hand with the creatures we hold dear, defending their right to exist in the face of adversity, I had always been fascinated by the stories my Native American friend, Tall Bear, would share with me about the legends and myths of his people. As a lover of the outdoors, I would often join him on his expeditions into the wilderness, seeking adventure and learning about the ancient traditions and beliefs of his tribe. One day, Tall Bear invited me to accompany him to a remote area of the forest where he had discovered something unusual. He had found a 25-30-foot section of barbed wire fence knocked down, and one of the goats from a nearby farm was missing. Intrigued, I agreed to join him in investigating the strange occurrence. As we made our way through the dense forest, Tall Bear shared with me some of the eerie stories of unknown creatures that were said to roam the land, creatures that defied explanation and were deeply rooted in his people's folklore. Upon reaching the site, we found the goat lying on the ground with a broken neck, its bowels missing, and its tongue sticking out. The sight was gruesome, and I couldn't help but feel a sense of dread wash over me. 
tall bear, however, remained stoic, carefully examining the area for any clues as to what could have caused such a horrifying scene. The next day, we returned to the site to continue our investigation, only to find the goat's lifeless body hanging over a low tree limb. As we carefully inspected the surrounding area, we discovered enormous 16-inch tracks leading away from the scene. The tracks were unlike anything we had ever seen before, and we couldn't help but wonder if we had stumbled upon evidence of one of the unknown creatures from Tall Bear's stories. Determined to learn more, we decided to follow the tracks deeper into the forest. As we ventured further, the air grew colder, and a sense of unease settled over us. We couldn't shake the feeling that we were being watched by something unseen, something lurking just beyond our line of sight. Despite our growing fear, we pressed on, driven by our curiosity and the hope of discovering the truth behind the mysterious tracks and the fate of the unfortunate goat. As we delved deeper into the heart of the forest, I couldn't help but feel a newfound respect for the ancient stories and wisdom of Tall Bear's people. The unknown species we were tracking may have been the stuff of legends, but our pursuit of it was as real as the ground beneath our feet. Whatever we would find at the end of the trail, I knew that our journey together had brought us closer to the mysteries of the natural world and the secrets of Tall Bear's ancestors. And in that moment, as we stepped further into the unknown, I felt a profound connection to the land, its creatures, and the rich tapestry of stories that had shaped the lives of generations before us. I was jarred back to memories of when I was growing up in New York. I must have been 12 to 14 years of age, having several reoccurring instances that I took for vivid dreams. The dreams include several periods of paralysis that would always end with my choking for air and on most occasions vomiting. In these states, I would be asleep in my bed facing up. I would open my eyes and find that I was drawn to one particular section of my ceiling, and I couldn't take my eyes off the area. I would feel the room expand. I may have a better word for this later, but expansion was definitely one of the senses I was having. I would then begin to rise straight up parallel to the ceiling and go through what would be an ever-expanding blackness. I can remember seeing myself even though I was still face up. It was like having a vision of myself instead of actual sight. I would then proceed to feel cold, very cold, and eventually there would be stars. After seeing the stars, everything would eventually go black, and the next vision I would have would be of myself on top of a large orb. It was as if I was one with it or molded with it because it seemed that my body was flush with its surface. I want to say it was silver, but it may be that my mind just saw it as a huge BB. I am in a massive chamber that went on and on forever. No light, no things to gauge distance. At this point, the same things would always happen. I would start to move away from myself. My vision of this always had me seeing myself from over my left shoulder. As I moved further away from the place of the B&B's dock, I would begin to fade, disappear, and the choking would begin. At first, it was just hard to breathe. Then I would be very aware of what was happening to my body that was left behind in my bed, and that is when the puking would begin. 
The more faded I became, the worse the choking would get, and eventually I would wind up back in my room with a rushing of great speed. These events happened to me infrequently at first, but then began to escalate. My feelings were that whatever was doing this no longer cared about whether or not I believed it to be a dream or not. It didn't help that I didn't have a family member that would listen to me as they never experienced anything. When this happened, the home always seemed empty or totally devoid of life other than my own. This thing happened to me for what seemed like years. During those years, I went through a lot of behavioral issues, violence, bedwetting, dissociation of family. I was then confronted with the faceless women. The same events would happen, but instead of going off to the void all the time, I would be brought to a huge chamber. Again, very black, no light, at least none, that could be explained or truly seen. In this chamber, I would be in a circle of about 15, 20 apparently mature women. They were spread out about arm's length apart, and I would float in the middle of the circle and be asked to choose my mother. I would look around at all of them, and they were all very similar. As I would try to see them better, I would either move closer to the one I thought was my mother, or just concentrate on the face. When I looked at their faces, they were always missing gone or blurred like an old black-and-white TV screen. It was impossible to choose, and when I did, I would always begin gasping and choking and would be told to pick again. This would go on and on without ever having an answer or an end. I'm not quite sure at what stage of my life this finally ended, but as I get older, it gets easier for me to remember these details. My story takes place in the fall of 1978. I was 12 years old, and myself and three other kids were walking along a trail along a bean field near our old childhood woods. The woods surround this bean field, and we were. We had our heads down looking on the trail, looking for used shotgun shells and such. We used to collect them as kids, so we weren't paying attention to what our surroundings were. All of a sudden... One of the kids went running by me, screaming and yelling, taking off in the opposite direction. I had my back turned to whatever he was running from. I turned around, and the other two kids went running by me, yelling, Run! 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 And I looked up in about twenty. Five to thirty feet away from me was this headless figure standing there. I froze. I was like for like five seconds. I was staring at this thing. And I got a good look at it, and the first thing I noticed was that it was wearing one of those shoulder bullet belts, like from the movie The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Nuri says you mean like the banditos used to wear. Yeah, yeah, right. And I didn't see a weapon or anything, and obviously it had no head. And it looked like it was wearing some type of uniform. It was an old Civil War type uniform. It had black boots up to its knees. I stood there for a second before I took off. I was just in shock, and this figure slowly raised its arm, and it pointed its finger at me. And I got a good look at its hand, and it was pale white, like it was dipped in flour. I can remember it like it was yesterday. And I took off running, finally, and ran into the woods where this other kid was hiding. And we watched as this figure walked alongside the bean field where we were standing, and it went off across the trail into the other side of the woods, and it disappeared. 
A husband and wife taking a scenic drive through the Lagonier Valley saw something very strange and unexpected on the afternoon of November 23, 2015. At about 2 p.m., they were traveling on a rural road about two miles from Lagonia. The driver of the car noticed some movement in some bushes on the right side of the road. Suddenly, an animal exited the bushes and began to trot from right to left in front of the vehicle. The driver stopped about 10, 20 feet from the animal to obtain a better look. The couple was startled by what they were seeing. This was no ordinary animal, as they could see the outline of the shape of the animal, but it was not solid, and there was no color or fur observed. The husband, as soon as he saw the creature, thought that it was somewhat like a fox, but could not be sure since no physical features could be seen. His wife also agreed that it was a four-legged creature similar to a fox. The body of the animal was estimated to be about 18 inches to 24 inches long and had a tail that was about one-quarter or half the length of the body. The animal was a lot smaller than a deer. The husband told me that the creature had a smoky veil shape. His wife, however, got a better and longer look at the animal as it entered the road and trotted in front of the car. She told me that she could see through it and that there was a specific area within the body shape that was like an energy pattern. It was like a smoky heat wave. They watched as the animal continued to cross the road and entered some brush on the left side of the road and was not seen again. The couple didn't hear any sound or notice any smell during the four or five second observation. Location is a campground that may or may not be currently accessible. I know it was closed, gated off from the road, for quite a while a good few years ago. Factory shows campground a good 20 minutes outside of Covington, Georgia. Yes, that's where they filmed the Vampire Diaries. Anyway, Factory Shoals Recreation Area. The campground, I'll say that I've never seen many other people out at this huge park, even on the nicest days, but a friend lives in a subdivision down the road. The area is sporadically rural, if that makes sense. You'll come across a school, a gas station, and a pretty big neighborhood, but nothing else for another six or seven minutes down the road. The campground is next to the Alcove River. In order to reach it, you have to drive through Newton Factory Cemetery, an old cemetery with mostly older graves sitting on the side of the road, slightly hidden by trees, smack in nowhere. I've often wondered about this. Graves date back to the 1800s. Maybe illegible ones are even older. And at some point, somebody says, hey, let's put a road through the cemetery and create a campground so you go down this janky road through the cemetery about a quarter mile, and here you are, barely managed campground. There's maybe seven sites, mostly next to the river. I'm with a friend. It's a nice evening. The light bustling of the river is calming. There's only one other site, occupied a bit down. No street lamps. The only light you have is the fire in your flashlight. So when we're headed to bed, fire extinguished. It's pitch black. You can see the stars. There must not have been a moon that night. I'm laying down and close my eyes and realize it's too damn quiet. Deafening silence. I jump back up and go to my friend's tent and tell her I'm suddenly feeling creep. We both realize the bugs and even the river have gone silent. To be fair, the river is only about eight feet across and about two feet deep here.
We had commented on the peaceful lull of the river all through the evening. With curiosity stronger than fear, we walk over toward the water and observe a mist or fog lifting from the water. We are a little anxious and don't want to get right up on the bank to see if we can see the water moving, so my friend remember a light-up fishing lure type thing she has in her bag, fetches it, tosses it in, and it just sits there. It doesn't flow down, so it's like the river came to a complete stop in its movement, is releasing a thick mist, and it's completely dark and silent except for that lure and its faint red glow barely visible through the thick mist. We both kind of start muttering that we should maybe pack up quick and leave before I see the spark and hear a gun firing not 15 feet away from us. Shine a light for a split second before we're both in the car. It's cranked and we're tearing out of there. I didn't see anyone either from shining my light or from the headlights, and I about had a panic attack coming through the cemetery after that with the elongated shadows from headstones and monuments. I didn't sleep that night even after crashing on my friend's couch. Logic tells me the quiet could have come from a prowling human with a gun, but the mist and a river current stopping. And what if the who, whatever, followed us? I didn't even gather my tent and sleeping bag before going home the next day. I luckily had placed my bag in my car for some reason instead of taking it inside, so my only loss was the small old tent, a sleeping bag, a battery-powered lantern, and a camp chair. So it's maybe a year later, and I'm in the area with my husband, and he doesn't believe me about a campground on the other side of a cemetery. It's midday, and I decide to show him, pull up. See that the road is now blocked off beyond the graves with a sign that states the campground is currently closed. We get out a minute to walk around the cemetery. It's a dirt road. There's a lot of kicked up dust settling. So much so that my husband asks if there's water in my trunk, he's coughing. I go to get it, cursing under my breath at the thick layer of settled dust already on my precious sports car and notice. A very clean and distinct, fresh, tiny handprint on my trunk. It had to be fresh because I stood there and watched the still-settling dirt start to stick and fill it in. We'd never made it more than a few feet from the car. There's nobody else out there. Again, we book it out of there. I know there's a legend about parking cars on hills in certain areas at night, and you'll find little handprints on the back, and your car will have moved. My car didn't move, but those were legit, fresh little handprints. I'm not sure if the cemetery brings playful souls, the entire area holds onto some type of energy, or there's just some incredibly sneaky people that hang out in minimally trafficked woods and back roads. I reiterate that this is part of a park a recreational area that has grills and picnic tables about three minutes down the road, and I never saw anyone there the few times I visited aside from my friend, husband, or the other tent I saw further down the river when we tried to camp. I've never gone back. I've been to other places in Newton Cove, though that give off similar vibes. The Alcovey Trestle, Gaither Plantation, a random church smack dab in the middle of the woods, that creepy old gas station. That's the story. I used to live in Japan, a place that is an enchanting blend of the ancient and the modern. 
A friend and I had decided to take a trip to the mountains, a respite from the bustling city life. This friend of mine was a fellow adventurer, someone who shared my love for nature and the mysteries it held. One evening during our mountain stay, we decided to go for a night walk, a ramble through the unfamiliar terrain under the starlit sky. The mountains were a maze of paths and trails, each leading to something new and unexplored. As we ambled along, we stumbled upon a Torii gate standing alone, its vermilion column stark against the dark mountainside. But it was a Torii gate unlike any other we had seen. Instead of leading to a shrine or temple, as they usually do, this one was met with an impassable rock face. It was an enigma, a puzzle that the mountains had thrown our way. Torii gates are symbolic passageways in Shintism, marking the transition from the profane to the sacred. But what sacredness could a rock face hold? In our shared confusion, we both looked up at the sky as if seeking answers from the cosmos, and that's when we saw it, a great multicolored light hovering just above us, close enough to touch yet ethereal in its beauty. It was like a celestial gas shimmering in the full spectrum of colors, casting an otherworldly glow on the Turi and the rock face. Then, as suddenly as it had appeared, it disappeared, leaving behind a sky full of stars and two awestruck observers. We stood there staring at the place where the light had been, a sense of something incredibly significant settling over us. We felt changed, though we couldn't pinpoint exactly how. It was a very odd feeling, like we had touched something beyond our comprehension. Neither of us knew what had happened that night, under the shadow of the Torii and the glow of the mysterious light. Yet it remains one of my most unforgettable experiences, a tale of the mountains that I carry in my heart. The first time I saw the Leviathan, I felt a cold shiver run down my spine. I'm Agent Walker, a combat diver with the United States Coast Guard. I've faced plenty of challenges in the deep sea, but this, this was something else. The creature was monstrous, its body twisting and turning beneath the surface of the Atlantic, its dark silhouette blotting out the sunlight. It had risen from the depths and was now a threat to the eastern seaboard. Our mission was simple, in theory, neutralize the Leviathan and save the coast. But there was more at stake for me. I was forced to confront my own fears, my own demons. You see, I have a past that not many know about, a past shrouded in mystery and filled with creatures of the deep. I've always felt a strange connection with the ocean and its inhabitants, an affinity that was both a blessing and a curse. As our unit prepared for the confrontation, I found myself staring into the inky depths, my heart pounding in my chest. I felt a strange kinship with the beast, just like me. It was a creature of the deep, brought to the surface against its will, feared and misunderstood. The plan was daring. We had to get close enough to the Leviathan to inject it with a powerful sedative, allowing us to steer it back into the deep ocean where it belonged. The task fell to me, the combat diver. I was to swim up to the creature, avoid its wrath, and complete the mission. As I plunged into the cold water, my past flashed before my eyes. 
the memories, the fears, the secrets. They all came crashing down, but I pushed them aside, focused on the task at hand. I swam towards the Leviathan, my heart hammering in my chest. The creature was even more magnificent up close. Its body was covered in ancient scars, a testament to a long life spent in the ocean's depths. Its eyes were filled with a strange intelligence, a silent plea. I could feel its confusion, its fear. It was not the monster we made it out to be. It was just lost, scared. Summoning all my courage, I swam up to it, the syringe in my hand. I plunged it into the creature, and for a moment, our eyes met. There was an understanding there, a silent agreement. It knew what I was trying to do. And then it began to descend, its massive body sinking into the darkness. The mission was a success. The Leviathan was back where it belonged, and the eastern seaboard was safe. But more than that, I had confronted my own past, faced my fears. I was not just a combat diver, but a man with a deep connection to the ocean and its creatures. And that connection, that understanding, had saved us all. When I was a teenager around 2004, we used to sneak down through a quiet area of scrub over the dunes onto the beach to smoke weed. I lived in a very small coastal town on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. Typical wildlife was possums, wallabies, and maybe the occasional kangaroo. Definitely no dingoes, crocs, or other apex predators around. One night, as we quietly made our way down the path, we noticed a shuffling, rustling sound in the undergrowth near the path. We stopped moving, and the sound seemed to stop as well. There was absolutely zero light, except from some houses in the distance and the moon. After a brief pause, we decided to keep moving. We heard the rustling sound again, and this time noticed some bushes moving. We stopped, and my friend whispered, Holy shit, did anyone else see the trees move? I whispered back, I only saw the bushes move. We stood there frozen for a few beats. In my head, I was weighing up the option to either continue on the path or leg it back home. We took a few more steps forward when we heard the sound like leaves crunching underfoot. At this point, I reached out and grabbed my friend's hand, thinking maybe we were being followed by someone. It was right then I noticed I could smell something awful. What the F is that smell my mate whispered. His voice came out so small it frightened me even more. We stood there for so long, but probably only a minute or two, until we heard a low groan growl sound coming from a few meters away. Now brush-tailed possums are quite common to the area and are known to make a kind of grunting coughing sound, but they are from the ones I've ever heard, distinctly higher-pitched and more chirpy-sounding than what we heard. This was a low and more sonorous sound, kind of like Ur with some strange catching catches sounds at the end. Needless to say, we wordlessly booked it straight back up the path the way we came. It sounded to me like a huge commotion of leaves crunching and branches shaking and crashing behind us as we ran. But reflecting on it with my adult hindsight, it definitely could have been us making all that noise. We never went back to that spot again and would bring it up from time to time, trying to speculate what could have followed us that night. Our best theories were that it was just a bloody big possum, 
or a person trying to scare us. The biggest issues we would argue over was why would a possum follow us, let alone down on the ground, although my mate says he saw the tree branches move as well, and if it was a person, how did they make that sound? And what was the smell? And why didn't we hear any footfall? Maybe it was just a coincidence of events, a person following us, a nearby possum growling, and a nearby dead animal stink wafting over at just the right moment. It still makes me shiver to think about it now.